0: Well, a couple of you mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry, you have to preach on the Sunday after Christmas. You must have drawn the short, the short straw there. But I chose this life, <laughs> and I actually chose to preach on this Sunday. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that this text would be as complicated as it ended up being. But I am—it's a joy to, to preach to the few of you who braved the ice and the snow to, to be with us this morning, the day after Christmas. We're in the series entitled, A Better Christmas, so the day after, was it better? Was it a better Christmas? One thing I'm always reminded of in the days and the weeks after Christmas is that yesterday's gift is tomorrow's donation to Goodwill. (laughs) That gift that held out such anticipation is soon forgotten, and we're left... Maybe feeling a little bored, a little unsatisfied, kind of tired after all the anticipation, all the buildup, maybe even a little lonely. Joan Didion, the famous journalist, wrote, we are imperfect mortal beings. We are imperfect mortal beings, aware of that mortality, even as we push it away, failed by our very complication, so wired that when we mourn our losses, we also mourn, for better or for worse, ourselves. As we were. As we are no longer. As we will one day not be at all. Joan Didion died this last Thursday. But I think she was right. We are imperfect mortal beings mourning our mortality and our many imperfections. Maybe the day after Christmas especially, uh, we realize that nothing is perfect and nothing lasts forever, including us. Is there anything perfect or permanent in this life? Anything that can hold out hope for our weary souls? We're in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 7. I'd invite you to turn there now. Hebrews chapter 7. Feel free to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. And you can find this morning's text on 1064. 1064. As you're turning there, I'll remind you once again that we are in the sermon series entitled A Better Christmas. Christmas may have been yesterday, but we're going to keep on celebrating. Uh today and into the new year as part of this Advent series. Uh so far we've considered Christ the better man, and then Christ the better prophet, Christ the better king, just this last Sunday with Todd, and this morning we're considering Christ the better priest. Christ the better priest. And I have one simple idea for us this morning from Hebrews seven, eleven through twenty-eight. So we're not doing the whole chapter, just of verses eleven through twenty-eight. A relationship with God only comes through our perfect and permanent priest. That's the big idea for this morning. A relationship with God only comes through our perfect and permanent priest. I have two points as we walk through that idea. First, our perfect priest. Our perfect priest. A lot of P's in the sermon today. Verses 11 through 19. A relationship with God only comes through our perfect priest. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. Those are verses 11 and 12. This text is all about perfection. Look down at the text and see that. You have perfection or perfect in the beginning, middle, and end. Verse 11, verse 19, verse 28. Do you see that? Verses 11, 19, and 28. So while the discussion that we have in this text about priesthood, Melchizedek, Aaron, all that might seem pretty much like a land far away, a time long ago, A little bit, you might feel a little apathetic to these things and these verses. This text is getting at a big idea of something that we all long for, and that's perfection. We all long for perfection. Look with me again at these verses, verses 11 through and 12. I think these verses are asking the question if the law and the priesthood were working, why did it need to change? If it was working, why did it need to change? You don't, you don't mess with perfection. Lardo, the sandwich shop down the street, <laughs> has been making their Korean pork shoulder sandwich the same way since it, it opened its doors on Hawthorne and became a brick-and-mortar store, and they've been making it the same way all these years. The Bronx Bomber, on the other hand, has undergone a few revisions, but the per- Korean pork shoulder has never changed. You know why? It's the perfect sandwich. But the law and the Levitical priesthood was no Korean pork shoulder. It's eclipsed by the promise and pattern of another priesthood. And this priesthood is the preview to perfection. This other priesthood shows us that we're going to have to look outside the tribe of Levi for our perfect priest. That's what's talked about in verses 13 and 14. But we're going to skip down to verses 15 through 17. Look down now at verses 15 through 17. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We found our forerunner of the perfect priest in the person of Melchizedek. Go home today. I'd invite you to go home today and read about Melchizedek. There's all of like three verses on him in the you know in the Old Testament other than the psalm that we quoted and in the book of Hebrews. Look at Genesis 14, right at the very end, before God's blessing and covenant with Abram, and he becomes Abraham, we have Melchizedek who just like appears out of nowhere randomly and then disappears without a trace. If we, if, we might, if we read Genesis 14, we might think the interaction between Abram and Melchizedek is pretty random and mysterious. But King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110 that Mike read us earlier, he thinks that Melchizedek is more than some random guy in Scripture. He says that the coming Lord is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And as Mike said, he was right. That psalm, Psalm 110, is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. It's the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament, largely thanks to Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews can't get over this psalm. And it argues that Jesus is the better and the perfect priest that we need in the order of this superior and prior priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you guys, I don't really know how Melchizedek exactly is a forever priest. I don't really get it. He kind of floats onto the scene, like we said in Genesis 14, he blesses Abram and then he just kind of mysteriously goes away. Uh, perhaps though, it's through his blessing of Abram that Melchizedek lives on forever. But to come back to these verses, verses 15 through 17, where we have the Psalm 110 quotation for the first time. The point is, this is the point of these verses, Melchizedek's priesthood is better because it's a forever priesthood. It's permanent. It's it's unlike the priesthood of Levi or Aaron. Melchizedek is a preview of a priest who who has an indestructible life, that is resurrection life, or a life that cannot be ended. Not just, and this is not just talking about the the quantity of years, the length of life, like everlasting life, but the quality of it, a life that is perfect. Let's look down at verses 18 through 19. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope is introduced through which We draw near to God. Friends, the Levitical law and the priesthood were not built to last. They weren't meant to bring anyone or anything to perfection. Uh, They were simply setting the table for something that's better. And that something better is a someone. You know, if you're a non-Christian here today, first of all, welcome. And congratulations again for braving the ice and the snow I wonder what you think about perfection. What makes something perfect? Few mortals can even draw a perfect circle. And no one, the Bible teaches that no one can live up to the standard of a perfect God. You know, that might seem a little harsh to our modern sensibilities today that no one can live up to God's perfect standard. But if we think about it for more than like 30 seconds, of course it must be this way. Because perfection is about beauty. Perfection is about justice. We wouldn't want a God who, who doesn't care about beauty and justice. We wouldn't want a God who gives in to the same vices and addictions that we give into. We want a God who's perfect. If there's a God, we want a God who is perfect in every way. And he has shown his perfection. He has shown his perfect glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the better hope by which we draw near to God. And the hope goes like this. A perfect God created a perfect universe and created us to rule under his authority in that perfect paradise. We were like princes and princesses. We were meant to fill the world with his perfect presence or his image here on earth. Unfortunately, we were proud. The consequence of our pride was paradise lost, perfection ruined by sin and death. And this is, today, this is the world we know, right? Uh, This is us, imperfect mortals, trying to find our way back to paradise in a world that is filled with sorrow and heartache. All because we turned our backs on this perfect God of love and power and justice and holiness. Now, this is where the story of perfection stops for many of us. Uh, Deep down, you know that there is a person or a power who created all of this who is apart from us, who's perfect, and you know you're not perfect, and you, so you find yourself seeking to prove yourself. Prove to, to yourself, to others, and even to God. But while it is true that God is perfect and demands perfection, don't stop there. Don't get hum, hung up there and find yourself in despair or constantly seeking to commend yourself to this perfect God. That's not the hope through which we draw near to God, doing better, trying to be perfect. The better hope by which we draw near to God comes through this perfect son who died for our sins so that we might be forgiven and know the hope of eternal life. He came so for all who might repent and believe, turn... turn their backs on their pride and trust in his perfect life lived for ours. So non-Christian friends, this is the hope of a Christian. This is the perfect news of what God has done on our behalf so that we might draw near to God, confident of Christ's work on our behalf. Why would we trust in our own reason Or our own resources when God gives us this option, when he when he offers us to come into his presence in the perfection of his son. Why would we go anywhere else? It's irrational. Ultimately, you know, today, if you don't know the Lord, we pray that today would be the day that you would come into the Lord's presence, realizing that you can't be perfect, but that Christ meets your need in his perfect son. The perfect uh, high priest. You know, for, for many of you, as I, I look out on, on you guys, my, my friends and my brothers and sisters, Christians, is this our hope? Is this our only hope? You know, the, the letter to the Hebrews was written to a church with a lot of Jewish Christians, uh, people who had grown up in Judaism. And these first century Christians, they were tempted give up on this whole Christianity thing. It was, it, was, it was too hard. Christianity wasn't really working for them. They, they were told they were cleansed from their sins by the blood of Christ, but like us sometimes they were having a hard time believing it. They, they, they were having a hard time believing that which they couldn't see. They had never met Christ. They didn't feel much different than when they were living according to the law before perhaps. Perhaps. They still struggled with sin. They still knew suffering. In many ways, maybe they knew even more suffering uh, because Christianity as a religion in the first century wasn't as respected a a religion as Judaism was. So the, the culture was much more accepting of the Jewish culture and customs than they were of Christianity. So these Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they were tempted to go back. They're tempted to go back to a more tangible hope. You know that that the law and the Levitical priesthood offered uh, something that was more that they could see, and they could touch. They could even smell the sounds. There, there was a priest who would go behind the curtain on their behalf, and someone maybe that you even knew who would tell you that you are forgiven, and a sacrifice that would be offered. It, it was nice. To have those tangible signs, right, that, that we are forgiven and that we can come into God's pres- presence. But here in Hebrews 7, we learn that that whole system is what? What does the text say? Weak. It's weak. The tangible way is weak. It's unprofitable. It perfected nothing. It left them guilty and unable to draw near to God and fellowship. The curtain between God and man was still there. And no amount of pleading, prayer, blood, ritual could change that. So fast forward to today, to our church. Is our confidence ever misplaced when it comes to our hope? Is your confidence ever slightly misplaced when it comes to your relationship with God? What are some imperfect and weak hopes that we look to? Instead of Christ, what are some imperfect and weak hopes that we look to instead of looking to Christ? Can we relate to these early Christians here? Do we sometimes draw confidence from the more tangible expressions of faith when it comes to our relationship with our perfect God? You know, if if you're anything like me, I contend to put my confidence in the things that I can see and control and manage when it comes to how assured I am that I'm good with God, right? But we need to be reminded that something like, say, the Lord's Supper, it doesn't cleanse our guilty consciences finally. Membership and baptism doesn't usher us into God's presence on its own. Knowing theology, going into full-time ministry, teaching Sunday school, serving, Bible reading, prayer, tithing, will not finally commend you before a holy God. That's not how we draw near, finally, and fundamentally. A plan that you have to live a better Christian life in 2022, you know, your Bible reading plan, your prayer plan, ultimately, that's not going to be what draws you into Christ, into God's presence. Your self-control and your self-discipline aren't going to cut it. They're weak. Another way to get at this idea of like why we struggle to draw near to God in relationship is what do you do with your guilt, right? Because isn't that the barrier that often keeps us from drawing near to God and even to others is our feelings of shame that come from our guilt. So what do you do with your guilt? How do you manage guilt? I think one way I manage my guilt is to comfort myself from other people's failures. I mean, don't, don't we do this? If Say, say you're a mom, and uh, you're struggling with mom guilt. And there's a mom that you really look up to, and you see her like, kind of lose it with her kids and kind of yell at her kids so and get frustrated. Um, a part of you derives some comfort from that, right? You're like, well, oh, I guess I'm not the only one who uh, loses it with my kids sometimes. Or maybe I'm someone who's feeling guilty about how I manage my time. I feel like I'm kind of wasting my time, frittering it away. And then I hear from somebody that I look up to, like a, like a pastor or an elder, that they spent most of the weekend playing video games. I think, oh, well, at least I didn't do that. You know, there's something, I think, legitimate to this dynamic. I think there's something where it's good to be reminded that we're all human and that we all struggle and that no one is perfect. It's okay to embrace this. Uh, but there's a better way to deal with our guilty consciences than just comparing ourselves to others. It's a, there's a better way than merely looking for failure in other people in order to prop ourselves up and feel better about ourselves. It's better, too, than, as we talked about earlier, the debtor's ethic, where we try to prove ourselves by doing good and doing tangible things. Let's quit pretending that our God is a God of law. Let's stop with the pretending. We will not come into his presence by ourselves. We are too imperfect. We have unsafe written all over us. He will not accept us into his presence on our own. Uh, if, If we could, why would he send his perfect priest with an indestructible life for us? So, friends, we've all been there. We all want what is seen, tangible, measurable. We, we naturally grasp upon those things as our hope. But look at how imperfect all these ways are. Look at all the ways that those ways have failed us in the past, and we still are left with our guilt and our shame. And I invite you this morning, As you meditate on this text with me, come to a better hope, come to this perfect hope and draw near, not merely so that you might have peace with yourself and feel good about yourself and be happy with who you are on the inside, draw near to the perfect God who demands perfection and has provided that through his perfect priest, Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus comes and ushers us into God's presence So that God's demands are met, not because of our performance, but because of his. And that ultimately is our hope. That's what we need to remind ourselves here in this church. That's like our job to encourage one another in what Christ has done, that these Christian activities that we do and even how we feel is not the basis of our relationship with God. Because as we considered at the beginning, we are all imperfect, mortal beings searching for something tangible to make us feel better about ourselves before a holy God. But the only way into God's presence is through the perfect son who serves as our perfect priest. And God accepts nothing more and nothing less than this priest. He alone is who secures our relationship with God. Nothing else will do. And that brings us to our second and final point, our permanent priest. A relationship with God only comes through our better permanent priest. And we see this in verses 20 through 28. Look with me at verses 20 through 22. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath. Jesus has also become the guarantee. Of a better covenant. As we considered earlier. The Lord never intended. For the Levitical priesthood to be permanent. That is why. He introduces us. To this priest king of Melchizedek. In Genesis 14. And why King David rejoices and the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, quoted twice here in our text. Uh, this Melchizedekian priesthood is the perfect priesthood that is the guarantee of a permanent promise or a better covenant, which we're going to consider, God willing, next week with Mark. You know, when, we, when it comes to important things in our lives, we like stability, don't we? We like assurance that things aren't going to change. And when it comes to a relationship with God, there's there's no greater stability, no greater need that we have than to look to this permanent priest. I think we fluctuate based on our feelings, based on whether we're having a good day or a bad day, how secure we feel in God's presence, right? If we're having a bad day, we're giving in to temptation, If everything's going wrong, we think that we are not in a good place with God. But I think what we're seeing here in this text is whether it's a good day or a bad day, God has made a promise that will never change. For this is an eternal priest that advocates for you before the throne of God. Leave the advocating to him. Look with me at verses 23 through 25. Now many have become Levitical priests, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Well, here in verses 23 and 25, we have the contrast between the many and the one. The many and the chosen one. Many became Levitical priests before. They were weak. They died because they were under the curse of sin and death. Dead priests aren't going to do you a whole lot of good. They're not very useful. But a priest who lives forever? This eternal man, we're told here, lives for our good. He lives to minister on our behalf. And since he lives forever, our confidence is then bound up in his life, not ours. Isn't that what we see in verse 25? Let me read it again. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. As we considered earlier, it was understandable why the Hebrews wanted to go back to their old ways. We like things that we can see and things that are more tangible, that we can trust in. We like having a person that we can talk to. Even even today, many, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church or an Orthodox Church, they'll go to confession with a priest uh, and they'll hear the words from that priest that they're forgiven, and they'll even do penance for good deeds or have Hail Mary's to say. Uh, you know, I've even heard some in the evangelical church say, I just, I love coming to church because I just feel so good afterwards. I mean, that's good. We don't want people to feel bad leaving church, but sometimes we, we can even use church and coming into God's presence as a corporate body, as a, as a way that we think that by doing that good thing that we draw near to God, but you can't go to church enough. You got to keep on going back to confession. It's not permanent. You got to keep going back. You keep sinning. You keep on realizing how imperfect you are. And then you die. And you have to face an eternally holy God. You know, why is it that we are more comfortable trusting ourselves, our own actions and feelings? Why do we keep doing this? I think this text is like a cold splash of water into our self-reliant ways. So let's quit trusting ourselves. Let's quit listening to ourselves. There's a more permanent solution. We need someone who can save us completely. We need someone who lives forever because he isn't subject to the punishment for sin, which is death. And that's what we have. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. His life is a life for you. We must come to him, come to God through him alone. You know, prayers are expressions of our trust in God and our dependence on him. Prayer changes things, but they change things because they come in the name of Jesus. They come through him and in him. And he reigns forever at the right hand of the father to intercede. That is to help us and to plead our case with his blood and his perfect life. If we're going to have any kind of hope of fellowship with God, if you're going to have a relationship with God, we need this kind of priest. That's what we see next in verses 26 through 28. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Again, if we're going to have a relationship with God, we need a permanent priest. We need someone who's going to continue to intercede for us on our bad days and our good days. And these final verses demonstrate the character and the finished work of our permanent priest. Look at verse 26. It makes the case that we need a sinless priest. Why? Well, because we're sinful. If we are to draw near to God in a relationship, we need someone pure to usher into God's presence to say he or she is with me. We can't live with God based on our own merits because we're all stained with sin. We need someone better than us. I mean, we all get this, right? Imagine that you're guilty of a crime, all right? Imagine you're guilty of a crime and you're looking to appear in court. You don't look for another criminal to represent you. You look for someone who is an upstanding citizen, uh, someone who is separated from criminals in order to represent you before the judge. So when it comes to our case before the judge of all the earth, how much more do we need someone who is separated from sinners? All of eternity is at stake in this case. Do we want to walk into that courtroom before that judge alone? That'd be a terrifying thing. Verse 27 speaks to the representative's work. You know, your your attorney is not going to build his case or her case on your good life or on your innocence. No, your advocate presents his life as a ransom for you. His life as a ransom for you. Here in 27, we also see, right, that the priest is also the sacrifice. He offered himself for you. And because of the identity of that sacrifice, The perfect, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinner's man, there's no need for any more sacrifices. It's the permanent solution to our sin. Again, this priest, this permanent priest is offered in contrast to the endless line of priests and sacrifices that came before. But now this is the better and perfect priest who offers himself and it's finished. You know, verse 28 brings it all together. You see how it brings together all these threads. God's promise or oath appointed a son who is perfect and who is perfected throughout forever through obedience to his father, mission accomplished, promise fulfilled, sacrifices and priests, priests no longer needed. There's no need to plead your case before the father. No longer do you need to defend yourself before your real or imaginary accusers, before church members or a pastor. Or family, the son's going to do your pleading. He will do the interceding. You know, think about why we defend ourselves. Or often we're doing that in our heads, right? We're, we're imagining people are judging us and we're kind of defending ourselves. Why we're not as bad at whatever. Uh, we're not what they think that we are. Do you ever do this? I think we particularly maybe do it in some of our closer relationships. Maybe we do it with our spouse or a parent or a boss, somebody at work. You find yourself seeking to justify yourself before these people in your life. Or you, or you think, you know, you don't, you don't know how hard I have it. You don't know where I came from or how hard it is to be me. You don't know what I deal with every day. If only other people could see what I have to put up with and what I've overcome. I wonder, when you fall into kind of that line of thinking, does that bring closeness in your relationships? Does that help you draw near to your boss or your spouse or your parent or a friend? Does it help you draw near in love? Does it help you draw near to God? Maybe, maybe you have an internal dialogue that kind of goes like that with God sometimes. Is that helping you draw near in confidence to him? Again, I think so often we become too busy being our own advocates. Uh, Defending ourselves is far from perfect and permanent way to deal with our guilt and shame. Why would we do this? Why would we defend ourselves based on our own character, gifts, or performance when we have a much, much better option? We have this perfect and permanent priest. He's the advocate before the Father that we need. He is the only way to a relationship with God, for he's perfect, set apart from sinners, and he lives forever to plead your case. He doesn't say, you know, Dan's a good guy. He's lived a good life. He's been kind to others. You should let him into your presence. He's basically good. He's nice. No, that's not my hope. The Lord made purification for all my sins and all yours. If you would come to an end of yourself. This high priest inherited a name that is far above every name so that he might represent you. His forever life pleads your case before the father for all eternity. So you're never in danger of being found out as like a fraud or a failure or guilty. You can put shame away. For you are free to enjoy a relationship with the one who came down from heaven to live a perfect life, die for our imperfect and mortal souls, and then live forever for us. When we rest and rejoice in how he offered himself for us, then we can draw near to him in faith. And we can draw near to one another without fear. Friends, there's no place better to go to have a clean conscience today. Our salvation and forgiveness in Christ is as secure as the fact that Christ, by virtue of his perfect sacrifice, now sits enthroned with the Father, reigning from the throne. This is the better man. This is the better prophet. This is the better king, and this is the better priest and the better friend that we need. Well, as we know, it's the day after Christmas. We got our white Christmas a day late. With all the anticipation, did Christmas deliver for you this year? Maybe for a few of us, but now technically technically, it's over. Sorry, kids, 364 more days till Christmas. The gifts, as we know, will not last. The decorations eventually will come down. The snow will melt. It will continue to rain. And we'll be, we'll need to be reminded today and every day that, well, we don't really need to be reminded. It's right before us that life isn't perfect. We're not perfect. And nothing seems to last. Everything in life seems to change. But we have one hope. We have one hope and one relationship that never changes in our good days and our bad days. We may be tempted to give up on him and go for something a little more tangible, some more measurable progress. We may give up on him, but if you are in Christ, he will not give up on you for he lives to intercede for you. He is the perfect and permanent priest that we need. And even when we are buried under the ground. He will continue to reign. And with the power of his indestructible life, he will call us to himself and he will usher us into God's presence, into his presence, where we will know no shame, no guilt, no fear, because he will be with us. He leads us into the presence of the Father even now. By his spirit. Friends, Jesus is praying for you. And Jesus died for all your sins. Past, present, and future. And he lives forever. So that we might draw near to him today. So will you cast yourself on him? Will you trust in his work and not yours? This is the better priest that we need today. Praise God for our perfect and permanent priest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for sending your Son at our time of greatest need. Oh Lord, we are so often to, tempted to despair and to become discouraged. Lord, we look inside and we look around at this world, all the brokenness. Lord, at how our lives have not gone according to our plan. And we wonder, are you really reigning? Are you really there? Are you really there for us? So Lord, we confess and we say by faith uh, that you are working in the midst of our brokenness and discouragement. Lord, to wean us off the things of this world, to wean us from looking to our circumstances or our feelings or other people to depend on because these things are not dependable. They will all let us down. Lord, help us instead to draw near to a, through a better hope offered through your Son. And Lord, we thank you that we have this kind of confidence and we pray that we would hold fast to our confession because we have a high priest in your son who isn't unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet has been without sin. So Lord, we approach your throne of grace now with boldness so that we might receive your mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. And Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to hear that prayer and to answer to keep us to the end. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.